listeners. This is Labor Know Your Rights podcast. I'm your host, Dave. This episode is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. Contact information can be found in the show notes, including our toll-free number, which is 1-855-625-8610. Please check out Life on Record, a gift of recorded messages for any special occasion to a loved one. See our show notes for details. On January 2nd, GM obtained an injunction from Judge Black ordering the strikers out of the plant. UAW aides discovered that Black owned 3,365 shares of GM stock valued at 219000 The UAW shared this information with the press, forcing GM to back off the injunction. GM demanded that the militia be called in to dislodge the strikers, but Michigan Governor Frank Murphy, along with Perkins and Roosevelt, felt that a poor idea. Murphy believed the UAW was in the right to force GM to honor the terms of the Wagner Act. With the government not doing anything, the strike spread to dozens of other GM plants across the country curtailing production of GM's Chevrolet and Cadillac lines. The other major car makers, Ford, Chrysler, Nash, and Packard, far from showing solidarity with GM, continued manufacturing, thus compounding GM's predicament. On January 11th, 10 days into the strike, GM sent police into plant number two, smashing windows of the entrance and firing tear gas canisters inside. The strikers had anticipated this and drove the invaders back with coffee mugs, pop bottles, iron bolts, and heavy automobile door hinges. Local leaders used an amplified sound car to shout, We wanted peace. General Motors chose war. Give it to them. Workers had made makeshift slingshots by stretching inner tubes across iron pipes and from the plant's roof let loose a rage of one pound and a half hinges. The cops tried again, but the strikers had activated the building fire hose system, spraying the cops with water in the frigid air. As the cops pulled back, they were assaulted by strikers outside, plant with snowballs and chunks of asphalt from the parking lot. Frustrated, the police pulled their pistols, firing into the crowd. Thirteen strikers were wounded, and nine policemen were injured. Governor Murphy had to order the National Guard into Flint, but ordered them to only keep order in the streets. He got the UAW and GM to agree to meet. They came up with a truce deal that strikers would leave the plant, and GM, agreeing to bargain with UAW only, scheduled to start on January 17th. But UAW learned that GM meant to include in the negotiations the head of GM's company union called the Flint Alliance. On January 31st, GM requested a new court order to clear the premises, this time being sure to seek out a judge with no financial interest in GM. On February 1st, in a diversionary move, the strikers provoked a fight with the police guards in front of a ball-bearing plant called Chevrolet No. 9. Cops in the area rushed in while a second strike group took over Chevrolet number 4 
an engine-making plant. The next day, GM obtained the injunction, which stated the strikers had until 3 p.m. of February 3rd to leave GM buildings and carried a potential fine of $15 million to the UAW if the injunction was not followed. The strikers sent Governor Murphy a telegram reminding him that their sit-down was peaceful and designed to force GM to obey the law and engage in collective bargaining. They vowed to resist again with force if assaulted again. The police of the city of Flint belonged to GM. The sheriff of Genesee County belongs to GM. The judges of Genesee County belong to GM. It remains to be seen whether the governor of the state also belongs to GM. Murphy would not call in the National Guard to enforce the injunction but arranged for Knudsen and Lewis to meet. On February 11th, 45 days of the sit-down, a four-page agreement was reached. The workers would end the sit-down for six months, and GM would bargain only with the UAW. It would not interfere with workers seeking to join the UAW or blacklist workers who had struck. The firm also to call off the court injunction and address workers' grievances. The UAW failed to get the eight-hour day or the 30-hour week it had sought, but it had set in motion the process that would ultimately unionize the U.S. auto industry. In the aftermath of Flint was the last result that most worried Main Street, was suddenly the sit-down strike was everywhere, in textile mills, glass factories, breweries, and even Woolworth Five and Dimes. In Gillespie, Illinois, 450 coal miners staged their own version, a stay-down, in which they occupied part of a mine 360 feet below ground and refused to leave pending new restrictions on the introduction of machines into the mine works. Even members of a National Guard unit that had been on duty at Flint sat down when their pay was not forthcoming. 900 sit-downs were recorded between 1935 and 1957. The CIO also won a crucial breakthrough in steel. Beginning in 1936, the Steel Workers Organizing Committee, SWAC, chaired by CIO Vice President Philip Murray, which for the half-century since Homestead had successfully resisted outside unionization. The aim was to get the nation's largest steel producer, U.S. Steel, to agree to recognize SWAC. On January 9, 1937, Lewis encountered Myron C. Taylor, chairman and CEO of U.S. Steel, in the dining room of the Mayflower Hotel in Washington. A brief discussion led to several additional meetings over the next few days, in which Lewis set out to persuade Taylor that unionization would bring stability to the steel industry. Taylor was a successful financial wizard brought in to help guide U.S. Steel through the Depression, and as a result, he did not possess the ingrained contempt for unions that often characterized major industrialists. On March 2nd, U.S. Steel the descendant of the mighty Carnegie conglomerate that had, after Homestead, clobbered unionized steelworkers 
formerly recognized the SWAC, announced a 5% wage hike, and accepted the 8-hour day and the 40-hour work week. In what became known as the Myron Taylor Labor Formula, the company also agreed to respect its employees' right to bargain collectively through representatives freely chosen by them without dictation, coercion, or intimidation in any form or from any source. This reversed almost five decades of anti-union fervor by the large steel interests. Several other large firms followed U.S. Steel's lead. Resistance to the Taylor formula cropped up at smaller steel companies such as Republic Steel, Youngtown, Sheet and Tube, Inland Steel, and Bethlehem Steel, known as the Little Steel. In May 1937, 75,000 workers walked off their jobs, led by Republicans' tough anti-union negotiator Tom Girdler. Little Steel owners at first tried to a clever subterfuge, offering to make a verbal but not written pacts with unions, since the Wagner Act did not specifically require written collective bargaining agreements. On the south side of Chicago, on the warm Sunday afternoon of May 30th, several hundred strikers, their families, and supporters had gathered at a former dance hall adjacent to a Republican steel plant to hear a series of speeches from SWAC leaders. Leaving the rally, they began a march towards the gates of the plant, chanting, CIO, CIO, CIO. Two young men led the way, holding aloft American flags. Police claim rocks were thrown, but witnesses, however, agree the shooting began before the full group of marchers had even reached the plant's gates. A sudden pop, then another, then another, suggesting it was the police who instigated the assault. The lead marchers turned around to flee, stumbling into their comrades still headed toward the gates. Those who had not heard the gunshots did not understand at first the reason for the sudden retreat. The cops gave chase, shooting at the protesters as they attempted to ran across a prairie-like field. Mainly people threw themselves on the ground. Others who turned to fend off the police were savagely beaten down with trenches. When it was over, ten marchers lay dead or dying in the grass, and more than 100 were wounded, including two children. A wounded striker, Joseph Hickey, told a reporter from his hospital bed, I went out with the rest of them and started to walk over to the plant. I was about 100 yards behind the head of the line when the uproar began. They were like trapped rats, panic-stricken, terrified. I saw a woman fall as she was being clubbed by a policeman. She was bleeding and looked like she was dying. I ran over to help her and leaned down to pick her up when the police hit me over the head. I was out after that. Little still fought the strike hard, and the strikers eventually gave up. This was a setback for the CIO, but only a short-term temporary one. People's perception with the Supreme Court ruling on the Wagner Act and the CIO wins in the auto industry and still thought John Lewis and Roosevelt were partners in changing America's economy. This made the break between the two men especially disappointing. 
This started back in 1933 when Lewis stated that the president wants you to join the union, thus putting words in the president's mouth, leaving him in a spot. In January 1937, Lewis was to meet with Assistant Secretary of Labor Edward McGrady to discuss the Flint sit-down strike. Lewis had, without McGrady's knowledge, contacted the press. The president, familiar with such methods, cautioned Michigan's Governor Murphy at one point to disregard whatever Mr. Lewis tells you. Lewis somehow learned of the comment and was furious and said it was during the winter of 1937 when we were gripped in fatal conflict with GM that I discovered the depths of deceit, the rank dishonesty, and the double-crossing character of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. The president seemed almost determined to get Lewis's goat that spring when the CIO was in its fight with Little Still, being impatient with what he termed extremists on both sides of the controversy. Lewis struck back using a nationwide Labor Day radio address on September 3, 1937, after accusing Roosevelt of showing a lack of gratitude for Labor's massive support in the 1936 election. He said, It ill behooves one who has supped at Labor's table and who has been sheltered in Labor's house to curse with equal fervor and fine impartiality both labor and its adversaries when they become locked in deadly embrace. Labor feels that its cause is just and that its friends should not view its struggles with neutral detachment or intone constant criticism of its activities. Lewis saw Roosevelt as an aristocrat with an intellectual sympathy for labor but incapable by virtue of his background of grasping the real needs feelings, and the solidarity of labor. Born of common travail, Francis Perkins claimed that the source of the final Lewis-Roosevelt split involved Lewis offering himself as a running mate on the 1940 ticket, an offer Roosevelt rejected out of hand. Lewis's aide, Lee Pressman, also remembered the scene, recounting that Lewis told Roosevelt, Mr. President, I think if you run for a third term, you may be defeated unless you have a representative of labor on the ticket, and unless that representative is myself. To which the president was said to have replied, That's very interesting, John. But which place on the ticket are you reserving for me? Soon more substantive issues railed the Roosevelt-Lewis relationship. Lewis was an ardent isolationist, who remembered World War I as a time when a reform president, Woodrow Wilson, had misled the nation into an unnecessary foreign war, and then allowed reactionary businessmen and politicians to repress labor and persecute radicals in the guise of national security. He thought he saw Roosevelt headed down the same path in response to the war brewing in Europe and feared that the U.S. involvement would not only subject Americans to greater horror and carnage, but make America into an imperialist nation, strengthening the power of the large money interests. He assured the nation in his annual Labor Day radio talk, saying, Labor in America wants no war, nor any part of war. Labor wants the right to work and live, not the privilege of dying by gunshot or poison gas, to sustain the mental errors 
of current statesmen. Roosevelt and his advisors tried to patch things up with Lewis as the 1940 fall election loomed, but a meeting between the two men at the White House on October 17th went sour almost from the start. The president tried to strike a cordial, relaxed tone. Lewis went on the attack, accusing Roosevelt of having ordered the FBI to spy on him and listening in on his telephone conversations, an allegation Roosevelt didn't confirm or deny. Podcast with your family and friends. Please rate our podcast on iTunes. It helps others find us. If you want to contact us to suggest a topic, have a question, or just want to say hi, our contact information is in the show notes, along with our sponsor, the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. <laughs>